Hello and welcome to Beer Prime, episode 59, with special guest Johnny Garrett from the Craft Beer Channel. Thanks for joining me again for another episode of Beer Prime. This week, I'll be speaking with Johnny Garrett, co-host of YouTube's premier beer station, The Craft Beer Channel, and award-winning beer writer too. Johnny scooped the main prize at the recent British Guild of Beer Writers Awards, as well as three category prizes, including one for his book, A Year in Beer. But before we head over to chat with Johnny, here's a word from our sponsor, White Ribbon UK. White Ribbon is the UK's leading charity engaging men and boys to end violence against women and girls. Many women in the UK craft beer industry are experiencing this violence in many forms, including sexual assault, sexual harassment, sexism and misogyny. It is not their problem to fix, it's the responsibility of us men. Me, you, your friends, your family. Here's White Ribbon trustee Dr Stephen Burrell. The fundamental idea is to get men to reflect on the role we can play in trying to prevent violence against women and girls in society from happening in the first place. Recognising that we as men and boys actually have a really positive part to play in challenging that kind of uh, violent and abusive behaviour towards women, which we can see is still far too prevalent in society. But obviously there's lots and lots of men who would never dream of using any kind of violence and therefore th those of us who are totally opposed to this perhaps could and should be doing more to speak out about it. White Ribbon does provide an avenue in which men can do something about it and can play a positive role in being part of the solution. So if you feel that you want to be part of that solution, head over to the White Ribbon UK website at www.whiteribbon.org.uk and make the White Ribbon promise never to use, excuse, or stay silent about men's violence against women. Maybe even sign up as an ambassador or a champion too. Let's help make the craft beer world a safe place for women. The chat with Johnny Garrett is coming up shortly, but first I want to talk about the alarming number and calibre of breweries that have been closing recently. On top of the raft of closures over the last year, some that we mentioned on the last episode, we've just heard about Warrington-based Twisted Wheel Brew Co, which only launched in February 2020. But the really shocking news was about Bristol's Wild Beer Co, a well-established brewery who only celebrated their 10th birthday a couple of months ago. I guess it's when breweries the size of Wild Beer go under that people sit up and realise just how fragile the industry is right now. All I can say is support your favourites before you no longer have the option. I know it's a tough time right now for everyone, and craft beer purchases are surely an easy way to save a little bit of money by dropping those. But wherever you can, support independent, and if possible to local breweries. The big boys will be able to ride this out. It's the smaller independents that we need to be behind. Okay, let's turn our attention now to guest Johnny Garrett. As mentioned before, he co-hosts the Craft Beer Channel on YouTube with Brad Evans. He writes for Good Beer Hunting and has written a few books too, such as multi-award winning A Year in Beer. Hi Johnny, how are you doing? 
Yeah, very well, thank you. Brilliant. Thanks very much for coming on to the podcast. Um, I know you've got your own one, um, and well, your own YouTube channel as well. So um, let's dive in right there and talk about the Craft Beer Channel. Obviously, you co-host that with Brad Evans. Um, you've got 145,000 subscribers at present. Do you get stats on how many video views you've got as well? Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, YouTube gives you all of the statistics. So actually, today, we hit 10 million uh, views in our wow. lifetime. 10 million? Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. That is brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I can't even conceive that number, let alone count to it. But um, it's something <laughs> I've been keeping an eye on for a while. So we've had uh, had an incredible year in, in in terms of views, but also in terms of the content that we've we, we've made. Um, and so three... 3.2 million of those views have come this year. So, you know, wow. a third of it. We've been going for, it'll be 10 years next year. Um, Excellent. But yeah, a third of the views came in the last year. So averaging a million a year, but as you say, 3.2 million this year alone. So that is pretty fantastic. And, you know, I was looking along there. I mean, I, I have watched several hundred videos myself uh, along the years. Um, but it's great. You, you do such a, a range of things. You've got uh, the beer school videos, the homebrewing videos, uh, style guides, things like that. But of course, you've also got some more kind of lengthier things as well. You've got a, a feature-length documentary, um, Looking for a New England, one for the road. And recently, you've just put up one uh, called The Time Is Now. Yeah, I mean, we that that's the stuff that we pretty quickly realized really interested us. It's a terrible format for YouTube. You know, the algorithm is not looking for hour and a half long deep dives into very niche beer styles. Yeah. Um, so we we always have to be a bit careful in what we do. Like increasingly we 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 get it funded. So yeah, the 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 time is now one uh, which came out in September and was was trying to make make the case for English IPA still being a, a a style that people should be getting excited about, particularly given the the plight of the British hop industry, was sponsored by Meantime. We did one about uh, the hop, how the hop breeding revolution of the sort of the the, the 90s and early 2000s basically built craft beer as we know it in the states, and that was sponsored by Siren. Mm -hmm. And then uh, looking for a New England was was entirely paid for by us, which meant that we lost thousands of pounds in the making of it <laughs> wow um and i mean it's done very well in the long term you know it's over a hundred thousand views and and i think it really set us on the course to make the other documentaries that we that we have done but we realized quite quickly that making feature-length documentaries you know it's it's between three and six months of, of my life in particular because i'm mm -hmm. you know we film it edit it write it produce it present it research it um do sing the, the, sing the theme running. tune as well Right, yeah, right. No, we don't write the theme tune. We, uh... <laughs> I mean, we could. I, I, I was a musician, musician for a bit, but I'd rather leave that to somebody who is a successful musician, not a failed one. Um, okay. So we, we have an amazing, um, there's an amazing producer uh, on the west coast uh, called Otis McDonald, and we use his music for pretty much everything except for the Christmas music. Although I'm sure he could do that as well if he wanted to. Mm. Um, but yeah, so you know that that's really what we love doing, and we love you know we love doing the homebrew and the style guides and the bits where the the sort of the sofa sessions we call them, where me and Brad just get to sit down and geek out like we do off camera. That's really nice, and it's it's often an easier edit for sure, because yeah. um, it, it you know it flows and the research has sort of been done by us over the years anyway. But you know we 
we don't produce the kind of content that YouTube really expects you to or kind of guides you to through the algorithm, but mm. by sheer force of nature and force of will, really, we, we've sort of made it work and managed to fund it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, as you say, 10 million views is is absolutely incredible. The uh, the one you mentioned, the Siren-funded documentary, the Hops That Built Craft Beer, uh, that was as part of the Siren Time Hops project and festival. And I was um, lucky enough to see that at the festival um, and really, really enjoyed it. It was um, an excellent look into those four particular beers Four beers that uh, only three of I've actually been lucky enough to drink. I think that's the thing about some of those beers. Of course, Sierra Nevada is one that we readily get over here in the UK, but the others just don't come over here. Out of those four, what would you say, uh, of the four kind of origin beers, what would you say is your favourite? If the question was which one would I most want to drink, you know, now, it it would be Focal Banger. Um, Okay without hesitation it's my kind of ipa you know i love i love new england aromas i love drinking fresh beer straight off the line i love that whole concept of of the new england ipa but i love bitter beer so focal banger is right up my street in in terms of my favorite beer you know as as somebody who's a a a writer a journalist a, a person who appreciates um really uh sort of the, the whole package, I guess, of beer, then it, it would have to be Sierra Nevada. I think there's so much to love about that company, about that beer. I mean, it's no longer their best-selling beer, which is kind of crazy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that beer helped build craft beer. It helped build their brewery. It helped shape what the rest of the world considered to be modern beer. They're still independent. They're still family-owned and argued over is the tagline they have. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we're, we're still kind of waiting in the UK for our Sierra Nevada. You know, everybody that reaches the point where they could become a true household name either sells out to a, to a macro brewery or or sells themselves out in different ways in the way that, that say, Brewdog have. Mm. And, you know, the closest we have are the big regionals, Timothy Taylor, St. Austell, people like that. And then, you know, potentially Thornbridge. But I think people forget how small Thornbridge are, really. They're, I think, 45-ish thousand hectolitres, which... You know, isn't know. It the monthly output for uh, it, Sierra Nevada. It's incredible, isn't it? I mean, you know, of of those breweries, Thornbridge, I guess, are the brewery that you do tend to see everywhere. And as you're saying, yeah, it's incredible that you would believe them to be much, much bigger. But um, they're doing a, uh, an incredible job with their beers, for sure. And doing a great job of putting it in the places where beer drinkers want to be. You know, that's why it feels like they should be bigger. But if you go to, yeah. you know, your average pub on the corner they don't produce enough beer to start to challenge for those those lines in the big pub codes so no yeah still very niche yeah and of the four siren homages then what did you prefer was it the focal banger version or was it that was probably the closest to the original of the four beers for sure i think they did a really great job of of producing that beer and i think also they uh, John Kimmich at The Alchemist was the one that was most willing to give them all the information. And that that's not the way the narrative really goes in the industry. People think that John Kimmich is a little bit reticent to give out his his kind of secrets. And the only thing they wouldn't tell him, uh, wouldn't tell them was the water chemistry. He said that, that you know, that's too proprietary, the, the stuff that he does for that. But everything else, he was like, this is how I do it. These are the processes. 
And that that's how they got really, really close, I think, and, and must have found probably, I mean, um, Sean, the head brewer at Siren was telling me like he trawled every homebrew forum that existed to try and find <laughs> the water chemistry of that beer to get that bit as well. And I think yeah. he must have gotten pretty close. But I think probably my favorite was actually the uh, the Racer 5 clone. Okay. Um, weirdly, it was my least favorite when we first tried it, but mm. I think it was too fresh. And it really yeah. opened up as as like the bottle or can shock died off. You know, it really came to its own and really developed the the sort of the the centennial soft pine and citrus that makes it such a wonderful underlying hop for other other beers. I mean, yeah. they were all cracking. I think the only one that was a slight miss was the Pliny one. I think they didn't get close to what well, the joy of Pliny and the reason why lots of people drink it are disappointed is the incredible smoothness and balance of that beer at eight percent and with two pounds per barrel of, of dry hop and i don't i don't think they quite managed that siren but the other three they did a phenomenal job yeah yeah now, um what, about you? You, what, what was your favorite um my favorite was the centennial as well um i just but i love centennial um you know you mentioned it there as being an underlying hop um and a lot of breweries do use it to back up uh you know maybe a mosaic and a citra or something like that but I, I love it on its own. Um, I've had plenty uh, of great, probably not enough to be honest, but uh, great single hop centennial beers. Uh, one in particular that that stays with me from um, the Colonel, just uh, an outstanding centennial pale. Um, and so, yeah, if uh, for me it was the the, the centennial, the race of five as well. Hmm. I, it, it's an interesting hop because it it does mostly play that kind of secondary role and. It is fantastic at that, and in my home brews, you know, it's it's sort of first on the team sheet. It's it's Jordan Henderson. It's like <laughs> everyone thinks he's shit from a distance, but then you take him out of the team, and you're like, oh, something's wrong here. Yeah. Um, but equally, yeah, it, it can really shine, which probably Jordan Henderson can't. But uh, <laughs> it, you know, I everybody, you know, the main criticism we had of that whole project, and I think Siren got the same thing, was like, if you were going to do a centennial IPA, why on earth didn't you do Bell's Two Hearted? which is mm-hmm. an all-centennial IPA. It's the only beer that, you know, critically is as West Coast-wise is as lauded as, as Pliny. And the, there were two two reasons. One is that it was a personal project, passion project of Darren, the owner of Siren, and, and he'd fallen in love with Racer 5 in his formation, not, uh, not uh, Bell's Two-Hearted. But also, we wanted all independent breweries. And, and sadly, Bell's mm-hmm. had just sold out to... Um, yes. Yeah, Kieran. Uh, yeah, I think so. I yeah, I lose, I lose track. I lose track. Yeah, me too. Me too. Once they've sold out, I'm just I'm very disappointed in in that. And it just, <laughs> just mean, the information starts to leave my head. So. It's true. I mean, it depends. For me, it depends on who they've sold out to. But definitely, yeah. you know, what once you sell out, generally we won't be covering it. So they they sort of drop off my need to research list. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, an interesting topic in the news, uh, I mean, not recently now, sort of just the tail end of the summer, were the two breweries that have actually been brought back from Kirin, For Pure and Magic Rock. What's your take on that? It was my favourite social media moment of the year because the very vocal people on on beer Twitter didn't know didn't know how to talk about this one. It was like, we know what to say when people sell out to the big guys. Mm. What do we do when the big guys sell them 
back into you know independence and they're like this has never happened before well, so it, it hasn't has it it, yeah, it is it's it new it's 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 a new situation to be fair yeah it's entirely new feelings and i mean my my feeling on it was that god my feelings are very nuanced which means it's very hard and very unpopular but you know, it's essentially while they were owned by those big breweries, they made some pretty shocking decisions. You know, Four Pure came out with that very bland rebrand that managed to be the worst of all, which was bland and offensive. Yes, uh, it was awful, wasn't it? So awful. it was just a remarkable own goal. And, you know, you don't know whether those are the the people making those decisions, the people coming up with those concepts are now at Four Pure, or whether they were people uh, that were on the macro side, so it's hard to know. And the same with Magic Rock, you know, they got criticised during the pandemic because they were, was it zero contracts that they were firing people that they decided they didn't need after all, and right, you know, doing some pretty dodgy employment practices. And again, you don't know whether that's a decision made internally at Magic Rock or whether that's done by their owner. So my 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 take on it was, we'll have to wait and see. You know, yeah. we, we should give them. If not the benefit of the doubt, we should give them time to see how they're gonna how they're gonna react, what they're gonna do, and what these new owners, which is a sort of an investment corporation put together by a couple of moneyed individuals, what they're gonna do with it as well. I can't think of a brand I'd want to buy less than Four Pure, so I'm not sure about the nous of these people. Uh, Magic yeah. Rock, you know, will always have a a place in my heart, and and we're one of the leading lights of the craft beer industry, and I think that their reputation could definitely be recognised. But from what I know of Four Pure's situation, processes, branding, and indeed the rent they pay on the site that they have, it's a a bonkers investment, and I wouldn't be surprised to see them, you know, slide away. Right. Okay. I mean, I to be honest, I don't think I was ever really that much of a Four Pure fan, even before. No one the was. Sale. No one was. I mean, that's the other reason that it's a bonkers it was, decision. It, like, it was. Yeah. It was. But way back at the start, they made some decent pills now. And, and a, a pretty nice Saison. I think we even covered that on the Craft Beer channel. I mean, the idea of them making a Saison now is kind of laughable. Yeah. But they were, you know, they were right there at the start. They were making, back before anybody really understood lager, they were, you know, getting natural carbonation in it through spunding and all kinds of cool stuff and, and making a delicious beer. But none of that original kind of ambition and interest in the actual um processes and history of the beer that whole concept of them being travelers who have learned about beer on their way around the world is just it's good yeah. Mm. yeah well hopefully something i mean to be honest my perspective on it is i do love a good redemption arc and so long as you're quite right with what you were saying there earlier i think so long as the makeup of the companies now are not those corporate decision makers, not the people that were involved in the in the rebrand, just like a completely new team, obviously keeping the existing staff that were there just to brew and just do the day-to-day jobs, because of course, none of this was there for in the first place, being sold out. And I think key really is just getting those beers back. And as I say, with Four Pure, I, I couldn't really even tell you many of the of their beers because i just didn't drink them for i think um was it last train or something was a, a stout i had was it called last train or something like that no, i can't I, remember I don't now. remember that one i mean they um, did like they did the opposite of of uh thornbridge which is all their beers went into all the wrong places you know so that as far as a craft beer drinker was concerned yeah four people were irrelevant um, yeah. 
we were surprised they were as big as they were. <laughs> exactly. But with Magic Rock, obviously you've got, I, for, for me, you know, there were a whole load of great beers that they, they produced. Cannonball, um, Common Grounds. I used to love Dark Arts as well. Um, Salty Kiss even as well. I'm, I'm not particularly that much of a sort of Sour Ghost fan, but, you know, Salty Kiss was a good beer. So I think it would be interesting to see what those beers are like. I mean, they've been taken, have been taken over, what, about maybe four or five months ago. When is the time that their output should be what they now represent? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, they've been incredibly quiet since, so I'm intrigued yeah. to know. I mean, there, there must be a lot of restructuring, a lot of rethinking going on behind the scenes and and i presume that they will come back probably in spring once you know dry january and slow february and st patrick's day are out of the way they'll be like right now's now's the time so we'll we'll certainly hear from one of them around now yeah okay well we'll keep an eye out for that but there's another not so much complete buyout and it's more recent and you mentioned St. hostel earlier but they've just taken a minority stake in harbour well, Harbour's always been an in, always been an interesting brand because they they also put their beers in very strange places. You know, they were one of the first breweries that went into supermarkets. Uh, you never really saw them where I used to live in in London uh, on tap or in any of the craft beer bars where I used to drink. So I was always surprised by the success that they were having. I guess quite a lot of it was local. Quite a lot of it was very well spread, like spread quite thinly throughout the UK. So. I'd kind of worried about them for a while and where they were going and with the pandemic hitting and all that kind of stuff. And they invested heavily in a wild ale project, got, you know, the great James formerly of Beavertown and and, and then a, um, urban farmhouse in to do their wild ale stuff and spent a lot of money trying to make that work. And it, it didn't quite seem to. So I, I'm, I, I feel like probably they were in some real financial straits. And, and I think that some are still of, of, recognize that in Devon and in Cornwall they probably have a lot of the kind of accounts that St. Austell would like to be in so it's a sensible investment but also St. Austell have a big pub estate of was it about two three hundred pubs which don't have a modern small batch kind of craft beer line unless they buy it buy externally um, and yeah. they used to buy quite a lot of beer from when I worked at Cave Direct in distribution they buy a lot of a lot of those kind of beers from us. So they thought, well, here's an opportunity to save a struggling brand that we like, that has great local cachet, that has some great accounts that we can hopefully tap into and that can also, you know, fill that gap on the bar for us. So I, I think it's a win-win for everybody there. And with what St. Austell have done with Bath, you know, mm. that was another brand that I was a little bit confused as to where they were going in the world. And I think they've done a pretty good job with them. So yeah, I'm I'm, I'm hoping it's positive news that particular buyout. Yeah. Okay, fantastic. Right, so um, I've noticed you've been drinking a beer. I'm going to crack one open myself. What what have you? What are you on at the moment? I uh, so yesterday, uh, Brad and I were filming a, a documentary at Oakham. Right. Yes. Um, so we're t- telling the story of you know how Citra arrived in the UK and and how that kind of built Oakham itself. So as we were leaving, they handed me a case of their. They have a. So it's all uh, whole flower, whole cone uh in oakham citra but they made a, a t90 and unfiltered version of oakham citra all so right pellets unfiltered canned it because cans are trendy so i'm I'm drinking it now i think it's very delicious i don't think it's as good as the whole flower version which is really interesting oh it's also 0.4 percent stronger hmm. don't quite know why that would be 
but yeah, it, it's very tasty, but it's not it's not Oakum Citra. It's lacking its kind of unique character, which um, oh, so we learned a lot about how they create that while we were there. It's really going to be a really interesting video. Ah, excellent. I'll keep my eyes out for that one. Um, I'm on um, a another canned beer from a brewery that doesn't do many cans. Longman, uh, 57. Um, they were the guests a couple of episodes ago, and they have mostly uh, bottled sort of traditional real ales, but they have a, a, cu- a current crafted collection they call Longman Creations. Um, and uh, I got a four pack. I was there the other the other day on my way down to Brighton for the weekend. And uh, so I'm just on 57, which is uh, a 4.8% single hot pale ale um, with El Dorado. Hmm. So, there you go. You'd, uh, you'd hope for some juice from the El Dorado. Indeed. Yeah. And they're getting it as well. Right. Okay. So apart from the Craft Beer Channel and your 10 million views, you're also a bit of a writer. You write for uh, uh, Good Beer Hunting, um, and of course, you also write some books. Now, week ago, week or so ago, there was uh, a little awards ceremony in London, the British Guild of Beer Writers, and you did quite well there, didn't you? Yeah, that was it. Was a, it was a real surprise? I didn't think you know we. I put two two things that I would thought were really great out into the world. Uh, last year and yeah that won as I guess four awards in the end with the overall awards so yeah it was <laughs> it's a pretty incredible night considering it was mm. one of those years where you put the stuff in and going well I'm I'm hoping we'll win video because well without being cocky we usually <laughs> win video because people aren't people haven't embraced it as a medium in beer anywhere near enough so it's it's mostly us but uh yeah, yeah. it was incredible to to take home the the gold tankard again Mm. So uh, one of the awards was for your book, A Year in Beer, mm. and that's all about seasonality. Is that something that uh, you're very interested in? Nope. Uh, no? it... You're not interested in it at all? I'll just it write was, a book about uh, it. But... I mean, I definitely am now, <laughs> but it was what's really interesting about that book is, you know, I think that the topic was a surprise to everybody when it came out. And, you know, it wasn't my idea to start with it wasn't something that I was really passionate about writing a book about. So I, I pitched a camera who who published it. I pitched a different book and they said, actually, that's too close to a book that we've already got in the works. So do you want to pitch something else? And I was like, well, I haven't got anything like to hand. So, so give me a moment. And they just sort of came back going like, well, we we've been playing around and talking around the idea of doing something around seasonality would you want to pitch something around that? And, you know, I was halfway through writing the email going, no, like there's no real seasonality in beer anymore. When I sort of stopped myself and went, wait, there's a publisher here <laughs> clearly wanting to publish a book by me. And you're about to reply and go, nah, nah, you're all right. So I, I sort of, I, I held off replying to the email and had to think about it. And I opened up an Excel spreadsheet and I put the months in one column and I started putting, you know, what beers sort of relate to each month. And, you know, on the first pass, you know, I put in Oktoberfest, I put in Metzen in March, I put in Christmas beer uh, and sort of looked at that and went, I'm still not really seeing a 70,000 word book here. Mm. Um, So then I sort of rethought it and I was like, right, well, let's not think about the beers that sort of come out. Let's think about the 
the the beers that people want to drink, the beers that people, you know, what people's habits are. So then I started filling in, you know, lager in summer, started filling in, you know, red ales in autumn and stouts in winter and barley wines. Um, and that nearly filled in like most of the year, but there were still gaps. So then I went, right, okay. So there must be some beers that despite modern technology, you you can't brew at certain times of year or a, a real technical challenge. So I started going, right, well, some breweries still only really brew lagers in winter because it keeps costs down with the chilling. Spontaneous beer can obviously only be produced when the temperatures are, are, are low enough and consistent enough to, to not get infections. And sort of across those three sort of modes of thought, I came up with a book uh, across sort of three three columns of Excel. And so started piecing that together and turning it into a concept of what modern seasonality and brewing could be which in the end i came up with the idea that it has two elements to it one is what we drink and one is what we brew yeah. and we have to think of those two things as actually subtly different so most people don't drink spontaneous you know girls style beers in january although they might i make the argument that it would be a good champagne at new year but <laughs> um you do have to brew it in you know november december january february a little bit yeah. So sort of I pieced it together and then started to get very, very passionate about the connection that that then created with the natural environment. So suddenly I was like, well, I'm going to the malt harvest, the hop harvest. I'm going to see Burning Sky fill their, their cool ship. I'm going to go out in, in spring um, and start foraging with, with Yonder and with Dea, which I do in the book, foraging for, for elderflower for an IPA they made. And suddenly like this whole way of looking at beer that started in an Excel spreadsheet became like visceral for me. Um, and then lockdown happened <laughs> and I couldn't do any of it. Um, yeah. So the book became quite a torturous process of having like three days before the next lockdown or the next uh, track and trace pinning me at home oh, do yeah. doing the, yeah. doing these bits. So I had no idea whether the book I wrote was any good. It was very piecemeal. It was, very personal in the end because it was mostly me sat in a kitchen that I couldn't leave. So mm. yeah, I sent it to camera when it was done about six months late. Um, and, and the marketing guy at camera, Toby said that he cried when he first read it. Uh, okay. he didn't give any explanation. So I, I was, I was going to say, is that a good crying <laughs> or a bad crying? Is it, Oh my God, how am I going to market this book or yeah. crying with how great the book was? Yeah, luckily well, <laughs> he, he he considered it the the other way. So um, yeah, well, I was going to yeah. say, you know, given given how it's uh, how it's gone and and the awards that you won, because not only the um, British Guild of Beer Writers Award for Book of the Year, but also Fortnum and Mason Awards as well. So yeah, Fortnum and Mason, American Guild of Beer Writers, Guild of Food Writers made it their Book of the Year. Ferment wow. made it their Book of the Year. Silver. It's just been been absolutely wild and i got to hug claudia winkleman at the fortnum and mason awards oh, and well, that was there you go that was Jumped, you know, kill me now. <laughs> so i mean obviously uh that means that the uh, marketing guy was crying in the in a favorable way because uh because he knew what he had on his hands which is which is which is fantastic so congratulations on on all those awards um the other categories you won as you say um best video beer communication but of course that was with Brad as well, so as part of the Craft Beer Channel, um, and best communication about pubs, so that the pubs that was though were those for the videos as well. That that was a, a mix of, of videos, writing, and podcasts. I, I spread myself across across the mediums because I don't really know who I am, um, 
I was, I'm, a, I'm a trained journalist, so that's sort of where the writing came from. And the, I think the broadcasting comes out of the failed music career where I just want people <laughs> to hear me make a noise. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the pubs. Um, I mean, and the pubs is what I was passionate about most to start with. You know, I worked in pubs for much of my teens and, and at university to fund it and really, really love great pubs. And um, so everything we do, certainly before we got the studio that I'm recording this in, everything that we did was basically filmed in a pub. You know, we'd be right. begging and, and borrowing and asking people if we could film whether uh, in a pub when it was closed or before it got busy and stuff. So it was really nice to to win an award for writing about that. Um, mm. And and particularly the, like the video that I love and, and probably tipped it was was our exploration of the Thanet micro pubs um, okay. down in uh, down in Margate and Rygate and um, Broadstairs. She's just an incredible, entirely unique little microculture that's sort of sprung up around three towns that really lost their heart and soul when, you know, the tourists started going abroad instead of staying at home. And it was mm. lovely to sort of tell a like like you said earlier, like a redemption arc for those those towns and those shops that would have closed and were turned into into great little pubs. Yeah. Ah, fantastic. Uh, right. So let's get into a bit of uh, current news, a bit of um what's going on last week there was uh, a little bit of a an outcry on beer twitter because of a beer 52 ad <laughs> right yeah i was no. wondering which outcry you were going to talk about right the well beer i mean there's, one. let's do that one. there's there's regularly an outcry on beer <laughs> twitter there's there's a few more i think i know the one that you thought i was going to come no i'm not going to not going to talk about that one um there was one about beer 52 and, and the advert that they uh, put out um which, which was ridiculous and completely tone deaf um and they have since apologized and ferment magazine who of course are owned by beer 52 have said that they're going to be doing a piece in their next issue um, about all the independents, craft beer bottle shops and bars that they that they love and they support. When when I see a, an apology like that, you kind of wonder to yourself whether was it really something that completely bypassed the management, and it just happened, and they saw it and said, "Oh my God, let's pull that and let's apologize for it," or did it actually get okayed, and then it 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 was it was put out there, and then they saw actually that it wasn't quite what they thought, you know, how they quite how they thought it would hit. And then they've walked it back. I mean, of course, none of us will really know unless uh, unless we were actually, you know, part of the team. But I don't know what your thoughts on it are. I mean, so I, I, I've worked in in those kind of environments. I've worked on e-commerce websites where you you pay an agency, which is what happened here. You pay an agency to do all of your paid advertising for you. So their literal job and they'll take a small commission off of every sale is to come up with the best adverts that convert the most people. And I know that that process is incredibly hard to manage because the way that these agencies work is to literally throw shit at the wall and see what sticks. And so I do sympathize with them in that probably that week, their agency had put 50 ads out there, you know, probably off of a brief definitely off of a brief from beer 52 going, you know, these are the things we need to target. These are the things that we think will work. Yeah. Price some text out that will work that way. So, you know, when they came out and said, you know, the management didn't see this, they didn't okay it. We're going to, you know, 
sort our processes out and ensure that you know approvals given on every advert i i do kind of believe that because i do believe that i mean i have let endless adverts go out without okaying them in, right. in my previous jobs before before i took writing full-time so i believe that's entirely possible the issue and why i would never um say that they're completely blameless um or even really sympathize with them in any way is that you know you you've picked that company and you should be picking companies that you think are going to behave ethically. And mm. what what that company did, that agency, I don't know who they are. They literally libeled thousands of small independent businesses by claiming they were robbing people. Yeah, absolutely. You know? So Beer 52 got it wrong in partnering with somebody that thinks that that's ever okay to do. B, they partnered with somebody that would take that approach generally. So even if they thought that it was legal to do and ethical to do, they still thought that... Um, attacking your other small independent uh competitors is okay like running a negative campaign so mm. again pick your partners carefully and then see yeah there's there's a failure of process there you should really be okaying every advert that goes out there that's your tone of voice my dad my dad was a great marketer he worked in marketing when i got my first marketing job which is what i did before i, I took writing full-time he was so proud and he always used to say to me as as a kid no, not as a kid. No, I'll tell you, <laughs> as a teen. And, and when I was getting tracky, it was like, sometimes people ask me what marketing is. And I say marketing is everything. You know, literally everything that a company puts out into the world, including the liquid that's in the glass is marketing because it's all your reputation, right? Yeah. So they should have taken much greater care across their reputation and cared significantly more about the reputation of the agencies they were working with. And to me, that's the mistake that they should be apologizing for most, you know? And, mm. and if it were me running that company... You know, unless there were big contracts in place, big costs, which there might well be, I'd probably want to walk away from that company and go, "What? Well, you know, you, you've done a great job for us, but I'm sorry. Like, if if you think that saying don't get robbed by independent bottle shops is okay, then we're not. You're not the right fit for us. That, yeah. that should never have even been sent to them to be okayed, whether they missed it, ignored it, or wanted it. It should never have ever reached that point. Sure, absolutely, and. You know, I, I guess in some respects, I'd, I, and you know, this is also coming from a perspective that I don't really know how it works. But the ad agency must have got some information from Beer Fifty Two about where they're pitching themselves. I yeah, wonder I mean, whether I can, they would have been sort of gleaning some of that from what they've been saying. Would they have been thinking, well, these guys when we when we sit in a meeting with them, they talk about how how bottle shops are so much more expensive. This is the way I mean, we, definitely, we should go. Definitely that's what they'd be doing. They wouldn't, I, I, I'd be very surprised. Like, I mean, I, I I have met the founder of Beer 52 a couple of times and I have worked with the editor of Ferment um, and consider Richard Crosdale like a, a very good editor and very you know ethical and campaigning human who is on the right side of so many of these arguments and reached out to me after we called it out and tweeted it. He reached out to me like 10 minutes later and went, you're totally right. There's a statement coming. We're so sorry. Yeah. Um, so what I think probably happened is they'd have gone to this ad agency. They'd have said, you know, we've got we've got a, a cost of living crisis. We've got breweries having to up their prices because the government is full of people that either don't understand what they're doing or literally want small businesses to die and, and indeed people to die. So our messaging needs to be that drinking at home using online retailers is the most cost-effective way for you to still drink good beer 
potentially from you know independent ethical businesses that might be something so that would have been the brief it's like we yeah. need to say to the consumer this is the cheapest most ethical way for you to drink good beer and the ad agency has gone away going right so we need to slag off all on trade <laughs> <laughs> all right. on trade yeah. establishment so you know that's how i think it went down i can't possibly know that and i can't possibly speak for no. beer 52 exactly and say that that is what happened but knowing richard and knowing his response to it which was he was absolutely mortified and that, to be fair i don't think richard is involved in any of that process anyway like he's no exactly and that's the thing isn't it i guess that it, there's that link because of the fact that ferment is owned by beer 52 and of course it's you know it's the, the magazine that's produced to go into the boxes but when you're working for that company and something like that happens and you are you know the kind of person that, that you say richard is you literally must be head in your hands thinking what have they done what yeah because, what's I mean, again, going on ferment is a marketing exercise and does a wonderful job i think of getting people who would never buy from beer 52 interested in what beer 52 are doing because yeah you know beer 52 is is a and i will probably get criticized for this but a wonderful gateway for people that are just learning about craft beer you know there, there's some great breweries that go into those packs whether they're doing it at the right price and whether it's ethical it's a bit of a weatherspoons argument here like should you be selling at that price yeah but as far as the drink is concerned you know, if you're just getting into craft beer, you could do a lot worse than getting a couple of Beer 52 boxes because you will learn a lot from Ferment magazine and from some of the beers that that come along in it. Yeah. And Ferment legitimizes that for people that are sort of beyond that level. And it does a wonderful job. So, you know, I feel like Richard would have been sat there going, all the goodwill I've built up, and then the ad agency sends out one advert that is grossly... It, well, it's libel. Um, yeah. and, and it can undo all of it. And, you know... When I retweeted that, I I thought, because I saw one tweet, I thought I was really early on it and it was going to get taken down. I didn't realize that it had been going on sort of all night and it was quite a big, a big thing. Um, yeah. Generally with these things, I have learned that it's best to approach people directly. And I think in that position, again, I should have been like, I'm going to email Richard, the only person I know would be fit to and be like, what's this about <laughs> first? Because I think, yeah. I don't know, I I wouldn't say it was overblown. Everybody reacted accordingly, but to me it felt like a huge mistake rather than a grossly unethical and inflammatory attempt to yeah. market share no absolutely and and in fact actually what what happened uh, what ended up coming out of it was that people were then tweeting i did some myself suggestions on local bars bottle shops to to actually go and spend your money yeah so yeah uh, and that, you know, that's wonderful I, as well you know and that is the benefit of people calling it out in public as well you know sometimes people yeah. say like oh you're virtual signaling or you're trying to cause a shitstorm against a company that you don't like or something but yeah that was a genuinely lovely side effect of of, of that whole thing of people calling out was people suddenly like well we should go to this place you know buy yeah. a beer from them to support those people so absolutely absolutely yeah, it, it, was, it was a wild day and uh <laughs> <laughs> i thoroughly enjoyed all of it you know? <laughs> okay when we were discussing uh, the topics that we wanted to talk about on the podcast you had uh, some things that you wanted to talk about lack of funding and therefore lack of proper journalism in beer well i mean <laughs> having said it would be great to talk about this because i've been looking for somebody that would be willing to i'm, I'm now sort of lost words because it's such a big topic but essentially for about two years until until the year and beer book came along and, and i suddenly became you know, very, very busy doing that and Craft Beer Channel and the podcast. Mm -hmm. 
uh, a big passion project of mine and something I was really enjoying doing and spending far too much time doing was writing news for Good Beer Hunting. So, you know, getting tips from people of, of stories, investigating breweries. There were so many investigations that I just had to sort of put in a folder and file away in my filing cabinet here because things things got too busy. But I was working very, very hard to try and get some actual, genuine, investigative news journalism done in the UK. Because what, what had just happened is, you know, we'd had, uh, obviously we'd had, you know, the Brewdog controversies for a long time. The McKellar one had just reared its, its incredibly ugly head. Um, we had some very confused messaging and conversations about independence and buyouts. We had the pub tie and market only rents controversies, you know, quick background in 2016, they changed the law to try and make it so that people could escape the beer tie. The big guys found a way around it and it was causing mm. serious harm to the business and to, you know, people's mental health. And and I was kind of like sat there looking at the world and going, who is writing about this stuff? Who cares enough about this? And why aren't there more people? Because everybody in the UK goes to the pub. You know, whether you drink alcohol or not, everybody goes to the pub at some point for some reason. It is still the social hub of Britain. Yeah. And yet nobody will talk about the fact that half of the UK's pubs are not owned by British companies. All of those non-British companies are in tax havens. They're literally extracting profit from the country, taking it outside of the country. And when, when they stop making money from the pub, they're selling it for flats or to yeah. Tesco. Mm. You know? And nobody's talking about the fact that we're be literally being asset stripped while we're sat there drinking a pint. So I was adamant when I when I went freelance and I had the time and good bit hunting, it took a while for them to trust that I had, you know, I have I have a master's in in journalism, that I had the sort of the investigative chops to do this. And I really got stuck into it. And, you know, they were funding it, they were loving it. We we're doing great stories. We we broke the 72 pint scandal, which was showing that uh some large regional cask ale brewers were selling their cask pins as if there were 72 yeah. pints in them. Mm. They're only being about 62, 63 pints in them, but then still claiming... So they were selling 72 pints, but then claiming 10 of it was wastage to the government. So they were like getting rebates for beer that never that existed. didn't exist. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, we broke that. I was on BBC News being interviewed about it. And then, you know, I got too busy. It didn't pay well enough you know, for the amount of effort that I was putting in, there's no disrespect to good beer hunting. You know, a story would take two weeks to put together. Yeah. Uh, but you get paid by the word in journalism, which is preposterous. And so I had to step away from it when the book contract came. And so I stopped doing it and started looking around again and going, nobody is, is talking about any of these issues again. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the reason is, and, you know, when I was getting involved in particularly in the, the pub tie and the 72 pint scandal and chatting to all these people that work in the, the pub industry rather than the, the brewing industry, they were saying, you know, we've spoken to this writer and this beer writer and this beer writer, and they just don't want to know. They don't care. They don't understand it. Or they're my favorite is like, you know, they're in the pocket of AB InBev. And that's complete nonsense. None of them are in the pocket of anybody. All of them care. All of them want to make a difference. But the, the simple fact is nobody is going to pay them to do it. Yeah. So any work that they do, you know, outside of good beer hunting, nobody is going to pay them to do it. So there, there's just there's a complete lack of accountability in craft brewing and in pubs. And the companies that want to can get away with absolutely anything. 
and it it breaks my heart and it makes me so furious i can't even really operate like the amount that companies are getting away with exploiting exploiting our small businesses exploiting our incredibly hard-working people exploiting the creativity of of writers of brewers of, of pub owners who literally have to like turn themselves into post offices as well as pubs and stuff just to survive because they're paying nearly 190 pounds for a keg of fucking carling mm. because nobody stepped in yeah. and gone wait a minute why is that a hundred pounds more than it sold to the pub next door that you don't own yeah and people just don't realize that this is happening so <laughs> and so to the people that say these these journalists don't care it's that there's literally no outlet for them anything they do would have to be done for free and journalists already get paid yeah 20p a word you know if you you and you can only write a thousand words in a day so yeah who should be looking at um putting these yeah uh, funding these articles then other than good beer hunting well the morning advertisers should actually do some journalism they they are the only now pub trade magazine people say that they're in thrall of you know their advertisers and there's probably some truth to that you know they are big pub co's and big breweries that are, are guilty of this all probably advertise in there yeah. Um, I, th- I think really the truth is having worked in B2B journalism, business to business journalism, it's that the journalists also have zero motivation to write these stories. You know, they they're deeply involved. And I was when I was at B2B in, in what's kind of called journalism, C-H-U-R-N, which is you get a press release in, you might call up to find out a little bit more. And then you have to publish it half an hour later as your editor's going, where's that story? That press release came in an hour ago. Yeah. You know, they don't have the time to go. Actually, I didn't publish those 20 press releases last week because I was working on a story about how, you know, <laughs> about the tax dodging uh, people that own 5,000 of the UK's pubs. Yeah, you know, that's just not going to wash with an editor. And, and when they finally publish it, the advertising people are going to be knocking on the door going like, well, we lost 10 grand this week. You know, they might not say you shouldn't have published that story, but they'll just go, this is the financial reality. We lost 10K this week. Yeah. So, you know, buy magazines, people, you know, buy the morning advertiser, reduce the reliance on on certain companies, reduce the reliance on advertisers, support Good Beer Hunting, join their Patreon, give them budget to pay for more journalists to be working in it. Mm. Support and don't tear down the journalists that might do it. You know, like I had a conversation with somebody who works in the pub industry recently who was sort of like, why aren't beer writers interested? And I had this exact conversation and said, you know, it's because there's no funding for it. And he said, yeah, well, they won't speak to us anyway now because, you know, we've called them cunts online and stuff. And you're like, well, like we're just all burning bridges for all the wrong reasons. Yeah. Um, and and we, we've ended up in the situation where, yeah, you know, if there was a major scandal in beer, you know, the nationals would pick it up. If there was a major scandal that nobody really quite cared about. So, you know, Brudo got picked up by the nationals and that's great. Yes, indeed. If it yeah. had been somebody a little bit smaller, say if it was Thornbridge, nobody in the widest sphere would be any the wiser and i'd argue that most people aren't any the wiser about Brewdog. you know well, they, they, they've seen it, a podcast go by in a documentary that was only available in scotland and well, it was on yeah Friday. i was just about to say that that you know I, we talk about the uh documentary the bbc documentary because of course we're in that bubble and we're we're interested in seeing it so we've searched it out but it didn't just appear on bbc one outside of scotland yeah so we seem to think that everybody knows about it because of the fact that we all know about it. And, you know, as you say, when we're 
going on to beer Twitter and things like that, all of the people that we're interacting with are people that are interested in what's going on. So therefore they know about it, they're talking about it. But the wider public, even a lot of people that drink beer, and even a lot of people that don't drink macro beer, that drink craft beer, still don't know about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's a, uh, the, the greatest mistake that I think that beer publishing and be uh influencing i guess is is the word so so people on social media that that have an audience make is that they assume we all make huge assumptions about the amount of knowledge that's outside of that bubble mm. and so much of what inspires us at the craft beer channel to do more is is we'll literally go when we're coming up with ideas for the craft beer channel and and and, and for articles what i'm doing where, where i'm writing for like could be hunting or something i'll go like i want to find something that people don't know and i want to tell them about it and you know, there's so many articles written in in beer these days, which is Burning Sky are an amazing brewery. Let's tell their story. And really, it should be the exact opposite. It should be you've never heard of this brewery. Let's find out about them. And you know that that's what we really try very hard to do on the craft beer channel. Not necessarily about breweries because mm. uh, not all breweries are, are accessible. And we you know we desperately try to go to these places, but about the styles. You know, we everything starts with education. Everything starts with a question you know, that people might not know the answer to. And not, an, I don't think enough beer publishing is really doing that. Too much beer publishing is is catering. It's going, I need to get the clicks on this. So I'll do something that people know. I know that an article about, um, about Verdant is going to, is going to do really well. So I'll talk about Verdant and, you know, we, we've done plenty yeah. of stuff about Verdant. You know, we're as guilty as anybody really, but everything has to, start with the assumption that people know nothing mm. particularly in a niche like 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 beer because yeah i mean even my friends my close friends who know exactly what i do know exactly what i write have been in this studio and have drunk my homebrew and, and seen what's in the fridge you know still don't know the four ingredients of beer they still don't know the brew dog are controversial <laughs> they still don't know who owns their pubs you know I, I was explaining somebody asked me recently they're like what's a free house and you're like well, if if they're honest about it, which they probably aren't, because most pubs that say free house on the door are not, uh, all the fucking JD Weatherspoons say it. Um, they're pubs that aren't owned by someone else, and they're like, "Wait, I thought the landlord owned the pub." And you're like, "No, the landlord almost never owns no. the pub." And all these things that we assume people know that just have never been explained because there's no journalist explaining these things. Yeah. But I mean, where would these people read it, though, to be fair? Because, you know, if they are outside of our bubble, they're not going to be reading Good Beer Hunting. They're not going to be reading Pellicle. They're not going to be reading, you know, uh, Morning Advertiser. They're going to be reading The Times, The Guardian, you know, the other other forms of media. So if if it's not being reported on um, in, in those publications, mm. how are they going to find out? Yeah, I mean, this is probably a conversation we need to be having with the the nationals I, I could go on an, an, another rant now about how the nationals don't really care about beer we every every time that we win an award we have the same conversation with well in fact pete brown when he when he announced that i'd won it he said you know if if, if a beer tv show is going to be made johnny should make it was sort of his his, yeah. his closing remarks when when he gave me the award mm -hmm. i could tell you categorically there will never be a national tv show made about beer because we have met with 20 different tv production companies 
uh, all of whom have been like, we want to make a TV show about beer. And without fail, they've all come back to us two minutes having, you know, we, we've made a sizzle reel with them, done interviews. We put concepts together. Every single time they go to Channel 4, Dave, the History Channel, BBC, and they all come back going, nobody's interested in in a, in a beer TV show. The public aren't interested. When I pitch my books, you know, so I've just got my fourth book nearly commissioned. We're about to sign the contract. We pitched it to 17 different publishers. Only two came back. The feedback from the other 15 was beer books don't sell. Like not right. even, like we love the pitch, but beer books don't sell. Yeah. You know, there's, there's this perception that either people don't care about reading about beer or watching about beer, or they just don't care about beer whatsoever. And probably it's, it's both, you know, beer is this commercial product. You know, we, we line up in industrial estates for hours to get our hands <laughs> on, on certain beers, but yeah. we are, a hundred thousand people really at the end of the day in a population of 60 million and the other 59.9 million people they put they put it on their shopping list next to the washing up liquid go beer like i do as a non-wine drinker like i'm getting into wine but in the weekly shop i just put red wine or white wine and then you buy what's half price you know i am the the wine (laughs) consumer version of what everybody else is for beer yeah and so when these TV companies come back and say, yeah, we don't really care, or when I pitch to a, a national newspaper a story and they come back going, yeah, it's not for us, I do understand it. It's deeply frustrating, and I think that it's definitely changing. Mm. But, you know, I, I I understand why the big guys aren't covering it, which just means we should find the funding for somebody small to, yeah. to, to do this. And, you know, credit to Good Bear Hunting. You know, they've done that in the States incredibly well, but it's based off of a crowdfunding... Uh, sorry, not a crowdfunding, a subscription model with they've had to make it super internal. So they have their Sightlines Plus, which is where you know breweries, distributors can pay a certain amount to get that news. It's not really going to consumers and consumers aren't really learning from it because that's the only way they can fund it. Yeah. So there needs to be a solution. I have no idea what the solution is, but we've got to fund it if we want accountability for any of this. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll try and come up with something. Obviously, if anybody's <laughs> listening, if anybody listening has the magic idea. Or the money. L- let us know. And, the, uh, well, especially the money. Absolutely. Let us know because, uh, yeah, we don't seem to know. Okay. Well, uh, that, I mean, that's really interesting. It's one of those conversations, as you say, that could just go on forever. Um, but, uh, okay, so it's coming up to Christmas, coming up to December. Do you ever go for beer beer advent calendars? <laughs> um, no, but not 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 for any particularly good reason. The only reason I don't is because just to the left of me, I have a fridge of about a hundred beers. Beyond that, I have an outdoor fridge of about a hundred beers, and then in my garage, I have about a hundred beers. So, uh, literally, I go to the beer shop to pick up fresh IPA and fresh lager. And that's it. You know, everything else, I'm just slowly working through this absurd stash. If right. if I were, a, a you know, a a drinker that didn't have three fridges full of beer, I, I think Advent Cunners is a wonderful fun. Um, yeah. it, I mean, obviously, there's ones that will cash in and will be probably full of, you know, rep- repetitions and, and, and bad beer. But um, I, I, I think it's a great idea so long as we accept that we shouldn't drink 24 days straight. And we should maybe <laughs> have a couple of days. Yeah, mm, possibly. I mean, they do have. There are twelve beer, uh, twelve day 
calendars as well. Oh, there we go. That's that's much so, more. So wait, do you do you start you start that on the twelfth? You know what? I don't know. I don't know. I think it possibly is, or you could just do it every other day. Personally, what I do and what I've done, I think, for the last kind of three or four years now, is I I do much the same as as you. I have also a, a big stash of beer that I'm trying to get through. So I'll just pick out 24 beers that I want to drink during that month. And I'll have a box because I've got obviously several of those out in the shed. I've had, we've all, I've had yeah, things to live it in. We've got a surplus of cardboard. And uh, yeah, and I just, I will put them all in, what they, what would you call the little kind of segments, compartments? Yeah, compartments, I think. Yeah. Compartments, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, and I just tell my daughter to randomly number them, one to 24. <laughs> nice. <laughs> There and you go. She, DIY is is she, Blue Peter, yeah. not Beer Prime. And then she she gets yeah, <laughs> she she literally gets some of the other cardboard of the other boxes and uh, decorates them with uh, with numbers one to twenty four and a few little drawings here and there. That is inspirational. People yeah. people take note. People should be doing this. <laughs> My daughter's There's, one, so she's not going to help with that this time. But no, 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 no. Possibly, possibly, possibly take a few years. Um, yeah, my daughter, uh, well, she's been it for a few years now, but she's 15 now, but she's very, very much into art um, and very much into penguins. So you often find that more than the usual amount of uh, drawings contain some kind of penguin. Well, that's very seasonal, to be fair. If Christmas was, if, if we lived in um, Australia, you'd probably have to say to her, I think you need to like flamingos a bit more. But... <laughs> yeah to be sure. But no, I mean, I'm not against um, advent calendars. I have done them in the past, but I, to exactly what you say, it, because I've got so much other beer, buying an advent calendar, if I'm going to do that kind of thing, I'm going to do it right. I mean, there are some great advent calendars for people that are listening that don't have so much of a uh, of a, a big you know, selection of beer to call upon during the course of um, December. The independent bottle shops do a lot of great well curated advent calendars i mean obviously the breweries do some as well but of course you are always going to get a lot of beers from that same brewery if you want to have a little bit of a wider spread then the independent bottle shops do um, a great job of and and really put a lot of thought into curating what goes into into those but because of that they do end up being quite expensive they're north of 100 pounds in in a lot of cases so um it depends obviously if people have got the money but um yeah it's it's one of those things do it whichever way you feel that you feel you want to do it but i'm not against them but i would just tend to do my own one these days and the good thing about it as well sounds awesome i I, suddenly i'm thinking well it's tomorrow i could i could enact this now you could could knock something together tonight johnny couldn't yeah yeah. (laughs) i mean it might be a great because like i mean when you've got like 300 beers in a stash you get paralysis of choice like on a par with going into a bottle shop yeah well so i mean what, what, you, what you could do what you could do as well to make it even more that you don't know what you're going to be drinking you could get your wife to select the the beers that go into it she'd pick all low low abv stuff uh, i have trouble getting up in the morning i'm not a man <laughs> full of energy so <laughs> 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 mm, maybe maybe that's not the best idea then never mind right okay so uh beer and red calendars excellent um we also i wanted to talk about i wanted to ask you a question that had been asked a couple of episodes ago on the podcast i do a, uh, a little bit where i get the guest to pose a question to the next guest now the last 
episode was uh, an American craft beer special with three American breweries. So I didn't feel it fair to ask them the same question. So the question that was posed a couple of episodes ago by Longman, by Tom and Steve from Longman, um, I've jumped it over the, the American special and I'm going to ask it to you. Okay. Now they did, it was geared a little bit more towards the guest being from a brewery, but I think you can still answer it. I feel at the moment people are going to have potentially less and less money next year. So we're going to be looking at more and more experience. So what's the perfect brewery experience almost, isn't it? And how do we deliver it? How do you see a brewery adapting over the next 12 months um, yeah. with, with everything that's going on? Because like, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. I mean, that is that is the question that every brewery must be asking themselves right now, because particularly with January coming up where people just pretty much stop going to pubs, you know, we're, we're getting into the, the toughest time and we're starting to see breweries closing already. The the phrase I would use, and it's a horrible phrase, is 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 added value. So uh one of my favorite places to go drinking in 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 where I live in Hitchin is is actually the wine shop. And they do incredible events where you know you I mean wine is a different world because it's so expensive to drink special stuff by the glass. But so you'll yeah. you'll get some really special stuff by the glass, you'll get some cheese, you'll get some meat, you'll get somebody doing a talk. Not like a like a a jump on the bar, meet the brewer style thing, but somebody you know literally coming around chatting to you about the beers, about or, sorry about the wines, and almost playing like a compare. You know, brewers are mostly incredibly awkward people, <laughs> and that's not really a role that they play very well. Whereas I think wine as a world is is pretty good at, at playing host now, and I think that that's something the breweries could really work on and maybe maybe have a think about who could play that role for you but having somebody that that can host events is a really nice way to get people in to your venues or into your customers venues more than they would have mm. you know we, we've <laughs> to bring it back to the beer 52 thing even if they're not putting libel libelous adverts up all of the online retailers particularly the bigger guys are trying to coax people to drink at home the supermarkets have since for decades been trying to coax people to drink at home and that's great yeah. for breweries that can make profit from selling to supermarkets you know they've 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 got the costs uh, and the volume to do that but it's not great for the small independent businesses so really your your competitor is not the other pub down the road it's not the other tap room across the street it's the supermarket and the online retailer mm-hmm. and they can't do events you know and you could see how successful they were with online events during pandemic so it's 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 creating an atmosphere. It's creating a buzz around experiential events. And you know, I've been to a lot of talks where they go, you know, the experience is everything for the millennial, and it's kind of nonsense. What we're just trying to say is give people a reason to get off their sofa, and then they will for that night spend the money. Mm. The other thing I would say to complement that is focus on broadening your audience both in terms of numbers and in terms of diversity. You know, if I've learned one thing in the last sort of year of the work that we've been doing, which has been a lot more focused on the history of beer and the diversity of beer, is is that there is a hugely untapped market of people that really want to know about beer and aren't being spoken to. You know, Pete Brown did a great blog about how we're not talking to sort of the over 45. David Jesse Darson's been talking for years about the fact that there are so many British Indian drinkers that, just aren't communicated to whatsoever and are so keen and often very interested 
and drink in the most amazing pubs that aren't being aren't being canvassed by beer reps who are trying to sell the beer. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you know, for, we have a horrific sexism problem in, in the craft beer industry, and that is putting off women left, right, and center. Yeah. And the best thing you can do is make your tap room the safest fucking space for whatever, um, uh, whoever um, walks in there, you know, mm. um, whatever their background. And it would be tempting, I think, for breweries to change what they brew. You know, if you're a car scale brewer, you're like, right, we need more four and a half percent, slightly hoppy pale ale at the best price we can possibly manage to as many pub codes as possible. But actually bringing it in-house, getting people to the tap room for events, hosting nights that will appeal to a broader demographic. Don't do a fucking indie DJ night. You know, you're only going to get your already audience in for that. And that might be great. Sorry, do do that. 100% do that. But also do all the other things. You should be yeah. doing all of these things. Um, and, and and yeah, just, you know, making the best beer that you can and, and leaving that to the brew team and getting your marketing and your events right so that you're not necessarily making things cheaper for people because, you know, that that's what the Tory government want us to do. They want us to all stay home, not cause any trouble and, and not really drink or use the NHS or our buses. Mm. What we should be doing is saying, no, come out. Less, but we'll do better. You'll spend a little bit more, but you'll do it a little bit less and we will have the most amazing time when we do it. And if you are remotely worried about being there because of past experiences, because of who you perceive as, as being craft beer drinkers, then forget about it because we've put these inclusive steps in to ensure that it feels like your place as much as anybody else's right okay so running good events and being welcoming and inclusive that's the key to to making sure that uh, people go out and and uh don't stay at home hoarding well say hoarding their money but <laughs> there isn't no there is no money there isn't, yeah. there's no money there's not much money going around yeah is it so i used to um i used to work for uh jamie oliver that's how I met Brad and, and how the the, um, the Craft Beer Channel started. And I remember that when we released uh, Save with Jamie, his book about you know uh, eating well on a budget, mm-hmm. um, all we got so much criticism from the national press because you know he was saying things like, "When your bread goes stale, tear it up and throw it in the freezer and use it as croutons for a salad or something." And people were like, "Well, most people's bread doesn't go stale; it goes moldy because it's full of additives and." We all know that cheap bread never goes stale. It just <laughs> turns green. Yeah. Um. And and criticisms like that. And, and what he said was, he said, uh, in in an interview, he said, "Save with Jamie. This this book isn't for people that are on the breadline, right? The people that are on the breadline, I could I could do a book for that. It would be, you know, here is how to make lentils and rice delicious. Here is how to bake your own bread with the cheapest flour. You know, this book is about." Your, your average earner who who because i mean this was back during austerity so i don't know 2013 14 i think Some, yeah 2014 yeah you know it's for your average consumer that still has expendable income companies having it massively squeezed mm. you know this is what i do so i say like you're gonna spend but everything that you do is gonna give you a better meal the next time you know using leftovers really effectively buying in store covered ingredients that you will use again not these random things that you're never going to, which were all his other books and he always got criticism for. And yeah. breweries have to approach it in the same way. We have to understand that people are not drinking craft beer if they don't have expendable income. Mm. Or at least they, they they probably shouldn't be, you know? And there's lots of great, you know, one of the 
real benefits of supermarket craft beer is there is now really wonderful beer that you can get at a very good price. But in terms of people going to tap room, spending six pounds a pint, added value is the most important thing, not necessarily discounting or yeah deals or takeaway deals or whatever it is. It, it, it's making the night that they do go to much more special so that next time they go like, where should we go? You know, they, they pick a craft beer tap room, not a Weatherspoons. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So have you got a question that you want me to ask the next guest? So the, the documentary we made, The Time Is Now, was ostensibly, it was about trying to make, get people to think about English IPA in a different way. We think of it as fusty and boring and dull and very old school. And so we wanted to go like, right, British hop industry is in crisis, but they're trying to change. They're trying to do the hop breeding that they did in America. So there's lots of amazing, exciting new English hops coming out. But equally, mm-hmm. we have the best malt in the world. We have an incredible bank of... We went to the the Norwich Yeast Bank, the uh, the national collection of yeast cultures, and explored that incredible library of yeasts. We have everything that we need now to produce modern, exciting IPA that can still be inspired by the you know the colonial shit show that was the original IPA. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would do a question based on that, which is, if you're a brewer, when was the last time you made British hops, the hero of a beer. Okay. So that I even include not just using English hops. So if you've made a bitter, great, good for you. But when was the last time an English hop, the hero of your beer? And why has it been so long? Because it probably will have been. Um, (laughs) And if they're a drinker, I would say, when was the last time you you sought out an English hopped beer? Yeah. Um, And why has it been so long? Because doing so has, you know, about two years ago, it it was the five points best. When that came out, I fell in love with Fuggle. I've since fallen in love with with Golding, with Bramling Cross. I've got excited about Jester, Harlequin, Holocana, Mystic, all these incredible British hops. That, yeah. You know, if, if they don't succeed, these modern hops, then the British hop industry is doomed. Right. Okay. It will become a niche little industry that supplies the regionals. Yeah. And that's about, I mean, yeah, even the regionals don't necessarily use it. Timothy Taylor's is all Slovenian hops. You know, there's alternatives if, if we don't want to use them and yeah, use them or lose them. Absolutely. I, I have had um, a few beers with Olicana and um, Jester as well, I think, I'm pretty sure. But um, I really enjoyed those, those beers. I, I thought that Olicana is very much a, a kind of a similar um hop to the you know the yakima valley i mean obviously it's not quite the same as those but it, it did get bring that kind of that juiciness to to the beers that that we know not really getting on on some of the kind of yeah. older english yeah, there's, hops there's no real reason having talked to and i guess to some extent they have to say this but having talked to some of the farmers you know there's no real reason why these British bred modern crossbreeds shouldn't have as big and bold a character as the American hops. You know, they'll be different. They definitely will be different. You can see it in Jester, which has a real earthy character, even with all of the the sort of the more modern character. But Olicana, Harlequin, uh, Godiva to some extent, these hops have big, bold, citric, American-style character to them and can be used in that way in hefty dry hops, in big Mm. whirlpools. 
and you know the farms are still learning to grow these the the hop breeders charles farham they're still looking for the best hops you know it took america cascade was discovered in the 50s you know it, it took to 1980 for somebody to really use it in something meaningful so mm. it's going to take some time we need it to be a little bit quicker because of, of of the way that hop farming is going in the uk and they they've accelerated quite a bit you know in america they'll take 10 years before sending a hop to market here it's five or six mm. um but yeah there's no reason to think that we can't do that originally we thought well we'll just grow american hops over here we tried cascade cascade is an incredibly late harvesting hop by the time we hit october in the uk um farmland is basically marshland so mm. that that hasn't really panned out although some hop growers are managing it but yeah these modern british varietals are incredibly exciting mm. i really hope that everybody from like your your tradist of four percent bitter brewers to you know the verdants and dayers of the world are going to start taking these hops seriously and seeing what they can get out of them okay brilliant all right well i will put that to the next guest and uh see what they say uh johnny it's been brilliant talking with you this uh, evening thanks very much for taking the time not at all i'm gonna climb off my high horse and try and chill down with a <laughs> with a, a strong and, beer and put together your advent calendar as well and that too God, yeah literally right now i'm looking for boxes <laughs> as we speak excellent thanks again johnny cheers all right thank you Great to chat there with Johnny. Um, I've already put a year in beer on my Christmas wish list, so I'm looking forward to getting that. And speaking of Christmas, next up is my Christmas special, which will feature an as yet unnamed brewery and three beer writers, Mark Dredge, Natalia Watson, and Sarah Sinclair, as we discuss the beers of the year and much more. See you next time. <laughs>